0: Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton is breathing a little easier today. Ontario's wildfire response is being questioned. Hamilton's LRT still light years away. Mohawk College is addressing the skill trade shortage. Is reality TV going downhill? And 50 years ago today, a Canadian road secretariat into the history books. The JMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This
0: has been the story this weekend. And and the difficulty going forward is this could be the story going forward. And and that's not a good news story. Because smoke from these wildfires has, as you know, created poor air quality in Hamilton in in a variety of, of cities, not only in this country, but in the U.S. as well. From a city standpoint, how has Hamilton responded and... And the underlying question in all this is, should we expect a lot more of this going forward with the climate emergency we are facing? Dr. Linda Lucasic is the director in the Office of the Climate Change Initiatives at the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Lucasic, good morning. How are you?
2: Good morning, Rick. Um, do, doing all right, I guess. It's Yeah, it's been a, a challenge this week managing with the conditions outside, that's for sure.
0: Absolutely. I was, I was snooping on your Twitter bio this morning, and one of the lines in your profile is committed to building a climate resilient city, or, or I'm paraphrasing, it's something in that regard, which is very hard to do when you can't control what's going on in other provinces or in the northern part of the province. Talk about that commitment and how difficult it was this week.
2: Yeah, so so certainly a challenge. And, and we're realizing that obviously the climate crisis is a global crisis, right? It's posing existential threats to all of us. And this sort of situation is something that we certainly don't want to have to be coping with moving forward as any sort of new normal. So it is tough. And, you know, it's interesting hearing a lot south of the border, you know, blame Canada for what's happening here. But collectively, there's there's a problem here that sadly has been fueled by um, inaction on the climate crisis. So hopefully this is a strong message to everyone that, that we've got to get cracking on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, because that's part of that's. That's one of the factors at play here.
0: Yeah, this is, a, this is a global blame game. I mean, everyone is in the same boat and, and clearly not doing enough. What should we be doing?
2: Yeah, well, we we need to be doing all that we can to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and you know certainly that's the work that we're focused on here in Hamilton and getting getting the the city collectively as a community working towards net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And we we need every jurisdiction across the globe to be working on on the same goal in order for us to start to um, mitigate these kinds of impacts that we're seeing.
0: When it comes to these wildfires, uh, of course many of them are in remote places like the ones here in in northern Ontario. Is there is there a chance we can reduce the risk going forward or are we playing catch up here?
2: Yeah, so so, so this is an interesting problem because you know, it Experts will say, tell you there are multiple factors at play, but we know that right now, rising temperatures and dryness, heat and drought are contributing to the intensity and the severity of the wildfires that we're seeing. So within a Canadian context, we know that already, you know, at this point in 2023, we've seen far more. I've seen the figure 1400 percent of the quote unquote normal in terms of what we would normally see in the amount of wildfires happening across the country and the area of land being consumed consumed by by wildfire. So that's that's definitely a big concern. And again, that takes me back to if we're seeing these increases and we know that uh, climate change is a factor. That's that says we we need to get moving. We need to we need to be doing all that we can do uh, to address those greenhouse gas emissions and and curb that contribution at least to to this growing problem.
0: And the the prediction or the expectation this year is that Canada is going to lose uh, the most amount of land in terms of land burned than it has ever before, which is hard hard to fathom. Dr. Linda Lacasse is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, director of the Office of Climate Change initiatives here with the city of Hamilton, as we talk about all the smoke and the wildfires that are impacting us this week. Should we expect more of this? Because many people are saying, listen, climate change is not going away. We're going to be in this climate emergency for a long time. Uh, Is this just going to become the new norm? I'd hate to say it, but what do you think?
2: yeah we we certainly don't want that to happen but but i but i do know that you, anyone who's a gardener will know that we've had a very dry spring so the predictions for this year are th- are that we're going to be facing uh, a hot dry summer so unfortunately we may well see more of this um this year and hard to predict what's going to happen beyond that is it's going to be interesting um, to, to hear what the experts have to say on projections forward um, but um definitely you know I'm going to say again this is not something that we want to to be the new normal you think about you know within the context of a city like Hamilton where we've worked so hard to see local air quality improvements and we don't want to see that undone by um, that migration in of, of problem air emissions and so again you know, that says to me we've we've got to get cracking we we all need to be acknowledging and governments need to be acknowledging and taking Taking serious action on the climate crisis.
0: We've got about a minute. I, you, you referenced government there. The provincial government um, in its 2019 budget cut a bunch of funding for forest fire initiatives, which doesn't look good now. Do you, do you think the province has done enough to uh, improve the situation or are we going the wrong way?
2: I, I think we need to see more from our provincial government on the climate action side of things. And, you know, I, I have seen reference to this cutting back of of provincial support for fighting fires the reality though is that if we don't get a grip here we're going to see those fires closer and closer to home so um, i i I think that they need to circle back and, and pay some close attention to how they're looking at the climate crisis and how they're preparing and protecting ontarians moving forward
0: i agree with you on that one dr lukasik thank you for your time this morning
2: Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Linda Lucasic, Director of the
0: Office of the Climate Change Initiatives with the City of Hamilton. Certainly a trying week for many, especially those with respiratory issues. So we'll continue this discussion. at 7.50 this morning. Has the provincial government done enough in relation to mitigating these wildfires, mitigating this climate emergency? Or are we going in the complete opposite direction? You know, when you think about paving the green belt, sounds like this climate emergency is not a priority for this government.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: What should we make of Ontario's response to this wildfire situation? There are are other issues we've got to talk about here too, including, and we did so earlier this week, about the risk of power outages in the not-too-distant future because of capacity concerns. And we also have found out, and we'll talk about this with our next guest as well, about whether or not this province actually really does care about its teachers. A cornucopia of issues at Queen's Park to chew on with our guest, Colin Demello, Queen's Park Bureau
3: Chief for Global News. Colin, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, well, doing well, thank you. Good morning and thanks for having me.
0: We'll start with the big story of the week, and that's these wildfires, the smoke, the air quality. Um, How has the government responded to this?
3: Well, the government hasn't really been, um, you know, holding public briefings as an example or, you know, really talking about this unless specifically asked. Uh, but they but they said that they have you know quite a number of crews responding. Of course, Ontario uh, does have a northern wildfire fighting force, and those crews, those fire ranger crews, have been up there in northern Ontario. There are also some water bombers that have come from Minnesota uh, to help fight the wildfires. I think the question the government is now facing is you know not only uh, what are you doing to fight the flames, but you know are they acknowledging? the impact of climate change. Some are arguing that the severity of this year's fire season and the timing of it as well, it's quite early, Uh, in the season for this many wildfires, whether or not, you know, there is climate change that's having some kind of an impact and whether the government acknowledges that climate change is having that impact.
0: Well, Premier Ford uh, just the other day accused the opposition of politicizing this issue, linking wildfires to climate change. And also, you know, not a good look was Ontario back in 2019 trimming its forest firefighting budget by about $140 million. So two things that uh, are not uh, putting the the premier in a good uh, spot here.
3: No. And, and you know, to a degree, he is right. I mean, you know, the NDP was kind of using this as a launching point to talk about other things such as the Green Belt. I mean, they were trying to, you know, uh, make this kind of fit into uh, their criticisms of, of, of Premier Doug Ford. The Premier said, look, you know, right now what they want to focus on is, is fighting these flames. He said, you know, these fires are a perennial uh, kind of incident in which, He said, you know, 50% are started by uh, campfires and the other 50% are started by lightning strikes. And some will argue that, you know, our incredibly drier um, months that we've been having after a lot of that rain has led to a more fertile ground for a lot of these uh, wildfires. And in terms of the budget, you know, they didn't really tell us exactly what the budget is this time around uh, to fight these fires. But the premier indicated that they're, in his words, not going to spare any expense, which leads us to believe that if there is additional funding necessary – uh, with the stroke of the pen, the premier could approve that in a moment. And sounds like that's what he's willing to do.
0: You had a great story on globalnews.ca and 900 CHML in relation to elementary teachers in this province. Headline education minister says Ontario is prepared to invest in elementary teachers. What can you tell us?
3: Yeah, so so this is born uh, out of exclusive reporting that we did. Somebody had leaked us a document. Uh, This is a confidential document that kind of outlines the bargaining positions of both the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, which represents 83,000 education workers, primarily in public elementary schools, and the Ford government. And and what we learned is that the government is offering teachers a 5% raise over the next 4 years so that's 1.25% extra every single year what educators want is a cost of living increase plus 1% and they haven't quite defined what the cost of living increase is going to be either it could either be you know between 4 to 8% that's what we've seen inflation rise uh, in the last number of, of months and so you know it, it is an interesting question in terms of what do teachers deserve in terms of that cost of living increase is it kind of consistent with what people in other sectors have received? Is it consistent with what you know, you or I or anyone else in the public, uh, the private sector might receive? Uh, and and you know, is the Ford government willing to increase its offer? What the education minister said yesterday was he wants to get a deal done so much so that they're going to start increasing the number of times they've been meeting with teachers over the summer in order to get a deal done. Keep in mind, it's nine months since the contract expired. And nine months later, the education minister says they want to dial up the number of uh, meetings they have. So that kind of gives you a window into how seriously they've taken it before and how seriously they're taking it now, because they want to deal before september so there's no disruption
0: got about a minute with colin Demello from global news our queens park bureau chief and uh, we'll end it with uh, we we had a discussion earlier this week with ontario's energy minister todd smith about a report from the north american electric reliability corporation down in the states that said our province could be hit with generation and transmission outages for the foreseeable future now minister smith basically said there's nothing to see here is there a capacity concern should we be concerned
3: well, there are just in general capacity concerns in Ontario's electricity system. I don't know if necessarily, uh, you know, everyday residents need to be worried about the lights going off. I mean, Ontario has the ability to dial up its natural gas output so that we can have more electricity to get us, get us through the bad days. And, and at the same time, um, the province can always borrow from other neighboring jurisdictions uh, to kind of fill in those gaps. It's It's not the now that we need to be worried about. It's the future because Ontario's electricity needs are growing, and we have a mega deficit, deficit coming up in the next couple of years. And that is what the government is so worried about, because if they can't fill those gaps, that's when we could be seeing increased unreliability in the electricity system. So it's not so much of a now, it's more of the future that is the grave concern in this province. Great
0: roundup of some of the big stories happening at Queen's Park and across the province with Colin DeMello, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, thanks for the time. Enjoy the weekend.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening
1: to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: What is happening with the LRT? We, I mean, we've been talking about this for years now. We know that we're closer to the start of construction than we are further away, I, I would hope. When is construction going to begin and, and what is next? We did get a statement from Metrolinx as we invited them on the program and they said, no, we'll just give you a statement. Metrolinx saying, quote, Metrolinx recently presented to the city of Hamilton's LRT subcommittee with substantial updates related to our recommended packaging approach, procurement model and community benefits framework. Metrolinx is ready and excited to procure and deliver the project for the city of Hamilton as soon as we can. Well, that statement comes after a recent urban study suggests that a lot of people have a lot of issues with what is already happening including housing insecurity, a lack of engagement, some distrust with the powers that be. Ryan McGreal is a spokesperson for Hamilton Light Rail, a citizen group supporting LRTE in Hamilton, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. It has been a crazy ride up until this point, and construction hasn't even begun. Uh, to that end, where are we with this project?
4: Well, to be honest, we're not where I would like us to be. Uh, you know, if you if you want to look back at the history without getting into too much detail, but this project was approved with full funding from the federal and provincial government two years ago, almost to the day, and uh, in fact, if you look at when the project was originally announced, 16 years ago, all, again, almost to the day, it was in June 2007 when the province first announced funding for LRT and Hamilton, so this project is now 16 years uh, overdue to get started. Two years ago, this was approved as a, quote, shovel-ready project. And Metrolinx, in my opinion, should have gotten started on the procurement process right away. Because we know that from the time that you put out a call for interested parties to come in, the first step is that uh, if you're a company or a consortium that wants to, to get the contract to build this, you come in and you have to demonstrate that you're actually qualified to deliver on that, right? They can't just be fly by that operation. So Metrolinx does a uh, qualification round where they identify a short list of companies where we believe that these companies can actually deliver. Then they do a request for proposals where that company comes in and says, OK, these are the technical requirements. This is our price for building it. And then Metrolinx picks the best project. That whole process usually takes about a year and a half or so. And they haven't even started the request for qualifications yet. We're still, you know, before, way before the starting line. And they've had two years to sit on this. So it's very frustrating.
0: So if you had to put some serious money down on when shovels are in the ground, what would your best guess be? Are we thinking 2025?
4: Well, so Metrolinx has said that they plan to issue that request for qualifications in the very near future, which, you know, your guess is as good as mine That's what that means. But if we assume in the next month or two. Uh, and that would make sense given the fact that Metrolink uh, made that visit to the uh, LRT subcommittee in Hamilton. So they wouldn't be coming to give us an update unless they had something to update. So let's assume that then we'd be looking at realistically probably a year and a half from now before major construction starts. Now, they've announced some minor construction. Um, you know, they want to start doing some kind of prehab along the roadway in order to get ready for that. Uh, they're talking about purchasing some more properties, and I'd like to see some more details what that means. But in terms of major groundbreaking, we're looking at probably, um, you know, beginning of 2023 now, so the beginning of 2025.
0: Ryan McGrill is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ryan is a spokesperson for Hamilton Light Rail, a citizen group supporting LRT in Hamilton. We're getting an update on the latest, greatest with this project. With inflation where it is and where who knows where it's going to go from here on in, I can't imagine what this... $3.4 $3.4 billion budget is going to look like when those shovels ultimately end up in the ground, as we are surmising in 2025. What do you think about the budget? What impact is this going to have on the whole project?
4: It's, it's sort of too early to tell. I know there are certainly some cost pressures, and Metrolinx have kind of mentioned that on some issues. One of the nice things about that budget is that it's, it's a very conservative budget in the sense that There were a lot of uh, contingencies and escalations and overruns kind of built into that. Metrolinx has been burned, I think, in the past uh, from, uh, you know, making a a sort of a a projection about how much it was going to cost and then it ends up costing more. So they tend to kind of, I won't say pad the numbers because that sounds duplicitous, but they tend to be quite um, careful in their cost estimates. So we know that there is some room to absorb some cost increases within that envelope. You know, and the other thing to remember, of course, is that money that's going to be spent over a 30-year period. So inflation is always going to be a factor. If you assume that that's the cost in 2021 dollars, then you may see some kind of increases due to inflation. But inflation is, you know, it's running about four percent right now, which is a little higher than the Bank of Canada wants. But you know, just this week they tweaked uh, interest rates again. So. Um, You know, at a fiscal level, they're trying to kind of ratchet down on that, and we'll see what the effects of that are. But, you know, I'm I'm confident that the costs are going to be ridiculously out of control.
0: We have 90 more seconds with Ryan McGreal here on GMH. Earlier on this week, we spoke with uh, researcher Brian Doucette from the Hamilton Neighborhood Change Research Project, which is looking at issues in in uh, relation to the LRT. And it revealed that, uh, you know, Hamilton is going to see a lot of tall buildings, a lot of small condo units along the LRT corridor, most, most of which are going to be owned by investors. And, and that's simply not a good look. You know what?
4: I mean, LRT in itself doesn't, Uh, it, It attracts investment and it shapes investment. But in terms of what those units actually look like, that's a public policy matter. And those units can look like the way the city wants them to. You know, if we set the zoning in place to get family units in there, then we'll get family units in there. If we put in public funding in order to build affordable housing, we will get affordable housing. But those are policy decisions and they're decisions that we have to take seriously and we have to make real action on.
0: Absolutely agree. Ryan, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you so much.
0: It's a pleasure. Ryan McGreal is a spokesperson for Hamilton Light Rail, a citizen group supporting LRT in Hamilton. Um, other recommendations from this research project in which uh, Brian Ducent and his team went out in the community and asked people about you know, their concerns about LRT and that they identified a number of things, including uh, confusion, misunderstanding and mistrust when it came to Uh, community engagement. There wasn't, according to these residents, a lot of engagement with them on what they want to see. They want to be better informed going forward. So that's certainly something that the city and, of course, Metrolinks
1: has to work on from here on in. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Things are looking up in the local housing sector because, as we know, there is a, a massive skilled labor shortage in this province, in this city, but it is community partners like the Industry Education Council of Hamilton and Mohawk College who are stepping up to address this shortage of, in this case that we're going to talk about, residential construction workers. It's called the Workforce Accelerator Generating Employment or Wage Three Program, and um, it, it sounds pretty cool. But how does it work, and how effective is it going to be? And let's ask our guest Beth Gibson, is the project lead with the Wage Three Program at Mohawk College, and joins us now. Good morning, Hamilton. Beth, good morning. How are you?
5: Good. How are you doing this morning, Rick?
0: I'm good. This sounds like a really cool program. How does it work? Oh, it's
5: a really exciting program. Uh, We're on our third year, actually, Rick, of the Wage Program, and it keeps building momentum. Uh, We're really, really pleased this year to expand it. So we have two, three different stages, actually. The first stage, we have spots for 120 people who are interested in learning more about residential construction to come into a three-week program. It's a workshop essentially that introduces them to all the different types of career opportunities, um, including pathways to direct employment, apprenticeship, pre-apprenticeship. Maybe some folks need some academic upgrading. So we're gonna be running these sessions. There's eight of them in total before the end of the year, again, to 120 people. And then the next stage, if folks are interested in some more hard skills or rapid skills training, we're working with our Stony Creek Kids Campus at the Marshall School of Skilled Trades. And we've designed in partnership with the IEC of Hamilton, a really cool hands-on program that after the eight weeks of training, they'll go on an eight-week placement. And that portion, so stage two and three, is supported by the YWCA Hamilton.
0: And so uh, just back to stage one, could someone yeah. just complete stage one and then say, okay, I've, I'll, I'll, I'll do something else?
5: Absolutely. So what we've done is we've purposely integrated Employment Ontario employment services into the first stage. So if folks are looking for something different or again, maybe going directly to employment, they have an Employment Ontario caseworker or employment consultant who can help them navigate their next steps.
0: Should mention too that this is all free.
5: It is, which is really exciting. So we have leveraged our city school by Mohawk uh, methodology, which is a college within the community. You may have seen a couple of our mobile classrooms around Hamilton over the past few years. And so um, the training, uh, the workshops themselves are delivered at our Centennial location right across from Big Al's Aquarium, the old CAA building. And then our hard skills training will be delivered one session at the Stony Creek campus and then the other two at our city school trades lab at the ava rothwell center
0: beth gibson is our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml beth is the project lead of the wage program at mohawk college connecting job seekers with employers uh with entry-level positions in residential construction a an industry that needs a lot of workers and this is well-timed because we need to build a lot of homes too
5: Absolutely. And we're really, really pleased that we have such a bench strength of partners around the table working in collaboration with the IEC and Mohawk College. So we have Brant Haven Homes, Lasani Homes, New Home, uh, New Horizon Development Group, the West End Home Builders Association, Leona Local 837, uh, plus the Halton Industry Education Council, ACTEV, Predisearch.com. I mean, there's just a variety of partners that are all coming to the table saying we need to work collaboratively together to figure out those solutions to get you know shovels in the ground boots on the floor you know we, we joke about all the different construction terminologies but get folks directly into the uh, residential construction trades so this program Rick, if we have high school students who are in grade 12, they're graduating, really not sure what they want to do, uh, maybe going directly to the workforce, we encourage them to to participate and come into this three-week workshop to learn about opportunities and the skill trades. Um, anybody who's looking at reskilling or maybe a change in career, COVID definitely displaced a lot of people, right? So how can we help people navigate their career opportunities um Construction and residential construction is the backbone of our local economy. So if folks are looking for stability and good paying jobs, this is definitely an industry to get into.
0: I know you had your first uh, session on Wednesday. How many people are enrolled and, and how did that session go?
5: Sure. So actually it was our our second session that we had and uh, we had uh, 15 participants can go in each uh, stage for the workshop session. So, so far we're looking at about already twenty eight people that have made a commitment to go through the first stage of the program. And we had a great event at Lasani Homes in partnership with them earlier this week. And, uh, you know, really, really blessed that Amidio and his team um, opened up their Central Park location on Rymel Road, brought in their subcontractors, and we had a really great conversation about how the community education industry needs to come together and continue to collaborate to build some really innovative solutions to drive that talent pipeline forward.
0: Got another minute with Beth Gibson from the Wage Program at Mohawk College. What kind of feedback have you received from home builders, subcontractors, and those in in the industry?
5: really excited. I mean, this is, again, going into our third year of the program. Um, there's a lot of excitement because the employers and subcontractors can create awareness of their organization. They have an opportunity to have paid placements where there are subsidies that we can offer for that um, period. So it allows them to test, right, to train, to mentor, to build up that next generation of workers. And, you know, looking at the Industry Education Council and Mohawk College, these are two pillar organizations. In the community that have been dedicated to upskilling and training and career exploration, it really is uh, Rick, a win-win situation for everyone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, tip of the cap to Mohawk College and the Industry Education Council of Hamilton for teaming up once again to offer this. It is a it's a win-win-win from the students, the the industry perspective, and certainly those who need a place to live. That's for sure. Beth, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time today.
5: Thanks, Rick. Have a great rest of the day.
0: You too. Beth Gibson is the project lead of the Wage Program, the Workforce Accelerator Generating Employment Program at Mohawk College. More information, go to the Mohawk College website or search out the Industry Education Council of Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. listening
0: to the theme song from vanderpump rules it is a reality show one of dozens literally dozens of reality shows that are on our television sets and tablets and however you're watching shows these days there's also a new show called stars on mars realistic celebrity mars colony simulation ever created
1: hey do i look like a real astronaut will they survive he's still alive Will they thrive? Oh, we have a squeegee? Come on! The mental side of this is torture. If you need anything at all, anything, you're completely on your own. Stars on Mars.
0: There are so many different reality TV shows. But, but is reality TV, is the quality of it going downhill? Or are there still some shows that are... Piquing your interest and are really fun and engaging to watch. Probably a bit of both. Let's ask Bill Brio. He's a television critic, a journalist, and an author at Brio.tv and joins us now. Bill, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Rick, how are you doing? I'm good. I was I was thinking, you know, the first time that I was exposed to reality TV, and I came up with things like Survivor. American Idol and then I thought, well what about things like Candid Camera which was like real life reality TV. What what was your first i guess memory of a reality TV show that stuck with you?
6: Wow, uh, well yeah, I mean Candid Camera went back to radio and think um uh you know, you want an early 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 memory that makes me sound extremely old would be <laughs> Queen for a day which I remember as a little kid my mom would have on and it was bizarre, it was literally Women who were in need, like desperate, and whoever was the most desperate might win a washer-dryer or a toaster or something. It was terrible. Wow. <laughs> How long did that last? You know, maybe five or six. If I remember really? it, I mean, it must have been on five or six years. Like, yeah. Wow.
0: Uh, I also remember cops. I mean, that was real-world reality TV, following on, following along cops as they arrested people, and, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that, that went on absolutely. for years. Absolutely.
6: Yeah, and also there was a show back around that same time in the um just around, you know, two thousand, uh called The Swan. That was probably the most despicable because they they had these contestants and they would give them plastic surgery. They would literally carve them up, then they would vote which one was beautiful and which one wasn't.
0: Yeah, like,
6: I think one of the contestants committed suicide. Like it was a horrible, terrible show.
0: Uh, like it or not, uh, we, we should probably admit that reality TV has reshaped our world in, in many respects. And I just think of, you know, one one example of many, Kim Kardashian. I mean, other, would, would she be a billionaire otherwise?
6: Right, yeah. No, this whole trend of uh, being famous just for being famous. The Kardashians, are the best example. And uh, certainly, yeah, there's a lot of those shows. But yeah, we're Dancing with the Stars. and uh, You know, there's a lot of ones that are very popular now. And as you say... You know, uh, they're now sending celebrities to Mars (laughs) just, just for our amusement. So there you go.
0: Uh, there are, you know, I'll give these these producers and these creators some credit because there are some extraordinary ideas. From you know going back to Survivor, who would have thought of putting you know ten or fifteen or however many strangers on an island and see which one you know becomes the all time champ? To you know things like The Bachelor uh, or Big Brother, Top Chef, uh, Top Chef, Ninety Day Fiance. There's so many different ideas out there.
6: Yeah, and you know when when Mark Burnett first pitched Survivor. He had a hard time selling that show. No one really wanted it. You know, it was sort of *Lord of the Flies*. And finally, CBS, the last minute, said, "Okay, uh, but you know, we're not going to. You know, usually we own the whole show, but you pay for half of it." And um, that made Mark Burnett crazy rich. (laughs) You know, the forty-fifth edition of *Survivor* is starting this fall on Global and CBS.
0: That's pretty crazy. Do you have a best or worst reality TV show? You mentioned *The Swan*. Uh, that, that's that got to be one of the worst, because, yeah, I do remember that, and that was just gut-wrenching.
6: It was horrifying. That would be up there. Um, I think uh, for the best Amazing Race is, is tremendous show, Amazing Race Canada, which mm-hmm. will be coming back this summer uh, for the ninth time. That's really well made. and just I, I was lucky enough to be invited on uh, some segments of that over the years. Went to vietnam and china and different places to to watch them run it's incredible you know they have for every couple that are on that show there's a cameraman there's a sound engineer and they're all racing running backwards in and out of cabs airplanes and restaurants all over the world and uh, yeah so that to me is a really well-made show that's very entertaining
0: how long does it take to make a show like that they
6: take a month. They literally, you know, uh, I think they just wrapped shooting the ninth edition. And um, they, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an entire month to shoot. I don't know what it is, maybe 13 episodes. Uh, they sort of, they run a race in, wherever they're at. They take a day, a down day, and then they run a race and they take a down day. So hmm. it's spread out over a month.
0: Wow, that's pretty efficient.
6: Yeah, well, it is, but very expensive show to produce. And the longer it runs, the more money it
0: costs. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if you're flying all over the planet. Yeah, that'd be quite pricey. Why, why, Bill, do you think we love reality TV shows? Is it just because we love watching people succeed and, and uh, maybe fail more often than not?
6: Uh-huh. I think there is something to that, Rick. It's sort of people um, never get tired of seeing other people be humiliated <laughs> on television. <laughs> you know, so I think there is sadly part of it is that. Um, But also, you know, if you're watching Jeopardy, I think you're you're just astounded that people know all of these things. And, um, you know, that's a a show that, you you know, even if you lose, people are like, wow, you know, that's a hard show to to win on. Um, But, uh, you know, and and, uh, with the Casey Amazing Race, I think there is some uh, fascination with uh, people under stress and how they react and, and, uh, you know, all those factors. And even Dancing with the Stars, you know, I have to admire anybody who learns to dance mm-hmm. uh, over a few weeks uh, to that degree, and uh, so there is some admiration, certainly yeah. for Survivor for people's skills.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: There's there's some of these shows, Dancing with the Stars would be one. I would be I would be a an embarrassment on that show.
6: Me too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have two left feet. So I mean, uh, you know, when you watch the cele- so-called celebrities, it gets a little. Wishy washy because I don't think I know eighty percent of the celebrities anymore. Yeah, um, but um, still, so, you know, and, and that's why we're seeing so many now. One of the factors is the writer's strike. Uh, the networks are loading up on more and more reality shows because they don't know if they'll have any scripted shows this fall. We just had upfronts in Canada. So yesterday, CTV announced, you know, that Lily Singh will be hosting Battle of the Generations. That's coming up very soon. But several more uh, reality shows. uh, They had one that's in both in French and English that they've queued up. Uh, So they're really stocking up because this might be all we're watching come September. Wow,
0: Bill, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy your day and your weekend. You too, Rick. Bill Brio is a television critic, journalist, author. Check him out online at Brio.tv. That's B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: 50 years ago today, a thoroughbred named Secretariat took the sports world by storm with his iconic Triple Crown victory at the Belmont Stakes.
1: They're in the Secretariat.
0: A Canadian was along for the ride, and that Hall of Fame jockey joins us now on GMH. Ron Turcotte, good morning. How are you?
7: Good morning. Ron. I love the way way you say along for the ride.
0: (laughs) Hey, you had a big part in Secretariat's success. What was he like to ride?
7: He was a very uh, nice horse to ride. Very easy, very uh, uh, cooperative, you know, like he just. I just twist my the hand and he, you know, he'd just go, he knew exactly what I was doing on him and uh, never had to punish him or anything. Just chirped to him and he would go on. And And after, if I wanted to relax, uh, after I made a short move to get through a hole, then he would go right back, right back to relaxing.
0: You're 81 years of age now. You were 31 on this day in 1973. What do you remember most about the Belmont Stakes that day?
7: Well, it went pretty well the way I planned. I had plan that way. and uh, But when we had come out of the gate, I didn't want to rush him. So I just let him get up uh, on his own. And uh, before the... Uh, Before they closed the hole there, I turned to him and went through the rail and took the lead. Then I could control the race.
0: You obviously won the Kentucky Derby and then the Preakness Stakes. What was the pressure like in 1973? Because you had to go way back to 1948 in citation before the last Triple Crown winner. Talk about the pressure of performing at the Belmont Stakes.
7: I really didn't have any pressure. I had... uh, Won the Belmonts uh, the previous year with River Rage, um, and this horse uh, was better than River Rage. Was well, his greatest horse of all time? I think River Rage a really good horse too. So uh, that was my home base, and uh, I knew the track very well. And I knew I I go a mile and a half uh, good. So I knew the horse could do it.
0: At the finish line, Secretariat, 50 years ago today, finishes 31 lengths ahead of the next closest horse. When you looked at the video for the first time afterwards and realizing how dominating of a race that was for the horse that you were on, what came to mind? Did you think you were going that fast and you had beaten the competition by that amount of of stretch?
7: Well, I knew he was a super, super horse from the time he was a two-year-old. Uh, and I knew he would run all day. Uh, he wasn't your typical boat roller. He was more, uh, uh, he took more on his father's side. Um, and uh, not his father, I mean his uh, grandfather's side than uh, bull roller. So what? he could run all day. Boat roller was uh, basically a sprinter, they call him.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Hall of Fame jockey Ron Turcotte, who rode Secretariat to the Triple Crown 50 years ago today. Did you know or do you realize or have that sense that Secretariat was a special horse the first time you got on him?
7: Oh, yes. Well, I didn't know how good he was, really. But I you know, he was he was special from the first time I got on him in uh, January of 2000. Uh, of nineteen seventy two at high the
0: first triple
7: I, I was just for galloping him and then when I worked him uh then he didn't know what's like to put down first you know when I asked him for speed, but he learned fast he was a very intelligent horse um Extraordinary horse.
0: Yeah, obviously. The, the the first horse to win the Triple Crown was Sir Barton in 1919. And since then, only 12 other horses have won the Triple Crown. Why is it so hard to win?
7: Uh, well, you need a special horse to, to, uh, to win the Triple Crown. I mean, if it was uh, easy, then it would be done more often. But uh, it's not meant to be easy. It's, uh, it's only for three years old, three year old, and they have to reach your peak there about the Belmont, not at the Derby. You reach your peak at the Derby, and they'll run that one big, And uh, that's uh, you want them to reach your peak about the Belmont.
0: Well, Ron, you and Secretary, it certainly made it look easy fifty years ago today. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us, and have a great day.
7: Thank you. You uh, also forgot sixty years ago. In uh, 1963, when I rode Notre Dancer, the great Canadian horse.
0: Yes. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that another time because we're out of time. But I appreciate your time this morning, Ron.
1: Okay,
0: thank you. That is Ron Serk Hall of Fame jockey who wrote Secretariat and, yes, Northern Dancer. Completely forgot about that. Thanks for the reminder, Ron.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.